Hi, this is Father Neil here, and welcome to the March 23rd episode of the podcast Catechism with Father Neil. Today we'll be looking at numbers 587 to 591 of the Catechism. 3. Jesus and Israel's faith in the one God and Saviour. If the law and the Jerusalem temple could be the occasion of opposition to Jesus by Israel's religious authorities, his role in the redemption of sins, the divine work par excellence, was the true stumbling block for them. 588. Jesus scandalised the Pharisees by eating with tax collectors and sinners, as familiarly as he as with themselves against those among them who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus affirmed, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He went further by proclaiming before the Pharisees that since sin was universal, those who pretend not to need salvation are blind to themselves. 589. Jesus gave scandal above all when he identified his merciful conduct towards sinners with God's own attitude towards them. He went so far as to hint that by sharing the table of sinners, he was admitting them to the messianic banquet. But it was most especially by forgiving sins that Jesus placed the religious authorities of Israel on the horns of a dilemma. Were they not entitled to demand in consternation who can forgive sins but God alone? By forgiving sins, Jesus either is blaspheming as a man who made himself God's equal or speaking the truth and his person really does make present and reveal God's name. 590. Only the divine identity of Jesus' person can justify so absolute a claim as he who is not without he who is not with me is against me and his saying that there was in him something greater than Jonah greater than Solomon something greater than the temple his reminder that David had called the Messiah his Lord and his affirmations before Abraham was I am and even I and the father are one 591 Jesus asked the religious authorities of Jerusalem to believe in him because of the father's works which he accomplished. But such an act of faith must go through a mysterious death to self for a new birth from above, under the influence of divine grace. Such a demand for conversion in the face of so surprising a fulfilment of the promise allows one to understand the Sanhedrin's tragic misunderstanding of Jesus. They judge that he deserved the death sentence as a blasphemer. The members of the Sanhedrin were thus acting at the same time out of ignorance and out of the hardness of their unbelief. Okay, very well. So we continue this uh, section and we're dealing with the religious authorities of Israel and how they dealt with uh, Jesus' claim to forgive sins, that he is the saviour, that he is God. And obviously many of them rejected this. The Gospels speak about them rejecting it. However, remember that in the New Testament, basically everybody who receives the message or the vast, vast majority of those who receive the message are already members of Judaism. There are very few non-Jews mentioned among the early Christian community. Okay, there were some, 
but Jesus' whole ministries is to the house of Israel. St. Peter and starts off looking at looking out for Jews and t- announcing to them that, the, that their religion has been fulfilled, the fulfillment of their religion in the resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Paul does the same thing. Okay, Paul later will move on a little bit and evangelize also among the pagans. Although many times the pagans that we call them in the gospel are these God-fearers who were already half-Jews. They were people who were practicing Judaism, but never formally entered Judaism. A bit like the Ethiopian eunuch that uh, the uh, deacon Philip meets. That Philip meets him, and this man is returning to Ethiopia in his chariot, a very rich man, a very wealthy man. But he's returning from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and in the chariot he's reading the, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he says, it's a pity nobody can explain this to me. And Philip explains it to him. So I think the first thing I want to stress is that the the majority of the early believers in Jesus, of the early Christians, including the 12 apostles, the Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, basically everybody else in the Gospels, are all Jewish. Jewish people who see in Christ the fulfillment of their religion. And in a sense, Judaism after Christ splits in two. Half of the Jews, or many of the Jews, we don't know the exact numbers, but there were considerable on either side. Many of them believe in Jesus. Whole groups of them, like, for example, the people to whom the letter to the Hebrews is um, is addressed. Many say that this letter to the Hebrews is written to a group of priests, of Jewish priests, who have entered into Christianity. So many, many, many Jews believed in, in Christ Many of them accepted him as the fulfillment of the religion of their forefathers. And these, in a sense, became Christian and their Judaism, while valued, while didn't, uh, and it ended up being dissolved into the great number of people who weren't Jewish, who also became Christian. So for a couple of hundred years, maybe the Jewish identity remained, but then it disappeared. And there was no difference between somebody who had come whose uh, ancestors had come into Christianity from paganism and somebody had come from Judaism. Even to this day, there's no way of telling uh, who had Jewish ancestors, who became Christian, who didn't, if we're going back 2,000 years. And yet, the, the this uh, section shows us that we're invited to believe in Christ as God and as the one who forgives sins. And to be honest, it's not at all our business to be looking at Jews and calling them uh, bad names or saying that they didn't believe in Christ or that they even they killed Christ. That isn't what it's about. That there are many more Christians who don't believe that Jesus is God. Many more Christians who, do, who doubt the forgiveness of sins. That so often we doubt this forgiveness, this mercy of God. And this is what's important, that we are called to believe this. That Jesus announced something that was very hard for the people of his time to believe in just as it's very hard for us to believe in. We always think that we have to pay for our sins, that we have to earn forgiveness, that deep down it's within our power to be good. And it isn't. It comes from the grace of God. We need God's grace to perform works of righteousness. Yes, the works are necessary. Yes, unlike Luther, we say that we need to have a faith that shows itself in works, that a faith without works is dead. Yet, in order to do these works, in order to have a faith that produces works, we need the grace of Christ. So we're in this uh, circle that we need grace always in order to believe, in order to do good, in order to 
um, to approach and, and receive this forgiveness of sins. So this is what we're invited to today and then to see the relationship with the Jewish people, that Christ is the fulfillment of Judaism. That's why the Old Testament is so important. That's why the traditions of Israel are so important, that we need to know that the, on which all these promises are based on what they're fulfilled by. So now I'll read the in brief section that comes at the end of this chapter. In brief, 592. Jesus did not abolish the law of Sinai, but rather fulfilled it with such perfection that he revealed its ultimate meaning and redeemed the transgressions against it. 593. Jesus venerated the temple by going up to it for the Jewish feasts of pilgrimage with and with a jealous love. He loved the dwelling of God among men. The temple prefigures his own mystery when he announces its destruction. It is a manifestation of his own execution and of the entry into a new age in the history of salvation when his body would be the definitive temple. 594. Jesus performed acts such as pardoning sins that manifested him to be the saviour, God himself. Certain Jews did not recognise God made man, saw in him only a man who made himself God and judged him as a blasphemer. So this finishes the section for today. Um, again, I'm recording these a few days ahead of uh, when you're listening to them. So only now we're beginning to deal with this coronavirus and all the churches being closed and all the rest of it. It's a very trying time. I think I will comment on it in more detail in a future podcast. I'm still trying to get my mind around it to see how to deal with it. But definitely all of us need to be aware that God is great, that God is good, that God is more powerful than any problem, than any sickness, than any plague, than any virus. And also to uh, prepare ourselves that Christians should be ready for death any day. That our lives are precarious. I mean, all this virus in a sense has done is prove that the world for all of its technology, all of its internet, all of the, the, the power that's there, all of the money, all of the riches, all of the experts that a little virus can bring it all to its knees, that the stock market can be wiped out by something that you need to see a micro, you need a microscope to see, that people can die from something that we don't understand, that we're no better than, than our forebearers, that we face the same difficulties, we face the same challenges, and yet to see that Christ is more powerful. This is the important message of Christianity. Christ is more powerful than any sickness, than any disease. And that when we die, because all of us are dying, unless we're the last generation that's on earth when Christ comes back in glory, that we will die, we will experience physical death, and that all of us experience this. And in a sense, if we're on this earth for two weeks or for 200 years, it makes very little difference. Because heaven exists. And again, it's one of the problems that we face today is that the church has stopped preaching, not the church, but the priests and deacons have stopped preaching about eternal life, have stopped preaching about death, and have uh, many of us have fallen down on the job of preparing people for the most important time in their lives. The most important day we have is our last day. The day of our death decides how we spend eternity. Do we spend it with Christ? Do we spend it with God? Do we spend it without God in this ultimate rejection, which is hell? This is what we have to. This is what we have to see.
that this judgment is something real. I think we'll be dealing with it relatively soon in the in the catechism. But to see this judgment is something important. That each of our lives has a destiny. And it's not something we need to fear so much. Because God forgives all sins. All sins can be forgiven. The problem is do we want to receive this forgiveness? The thing to fear is ourselves. As Pope Francis said very early in his papacy. The problem isn't that God gives up on us. That's not the danger. God doesn't give up on us. The danger is that we give up on ourselves. So really just with this just to say courage. God is good. He will help us in this time. And again I'll talk more about this in a few days time when I've gotten my uh, my mind around it. So God bless and tomorrow we'll be looking at numbers 595 to 598.